Yeah, this has been a, uh, a good ride for the last two and a half years. Uh, our family, we're still staying in the area. Um, my son told me he does not want to be anything but a Broncos fan. So Ohio, California, any other state does not work because the Broncos aren't there. So we had to stay here. Um, finishing up my MDiv here in a couple weeks and we're gonna stick around. I'm gonna pursue a second master's degree and then we're gonna start, we well, actually already have started helping out with a church plant in North Inglewood off of Broadway and reaching into the North Inglewood area uh, with a group called the Sacred Grace Church. Uh, they're looking to plant neighborhood churches in every neighborhood in Denver over the next 20 years. And so we're excited to help out with that venture and uh, yeah, we're, we're just really thankful for the time that we've had here, the faces that I look out here, some of you I don't know, um, but many of you I do know and thankful for the way that you have helped me grow and shaped me um, as I've been allowed to, to serve here. So thank you for that. So as we're in this neighboring series, uh, we're going to be looking at this engage piece uh, of neighboring. Um, pray, engage, and share. And this morning there's a word that we're going to focus on, and it's the word desire. Desires are powerful forces, aren't they? Uh, when we have a desire within uh, for various things, it's amazing how we will often be driven internally to want to have that desire satisfied. Uh, think of hunger as a basic desire, an ongoing desire, three, four, or five, if you're a hobbit, six or seven times a day, you end up having this yearning within to be satisfied with some food. We live in a culture and, a, and an age where we can have that desire satisfied in so many different ways. And it's not just to find food. If you want Chinese food, Mexican food, burgers, pizza, whatever it may be, you can find a restaurant within two, five, six minutes really close by and go have that desire satisfied. But what happens when desires collide? What happens when you're at a crossroad where a desire for one thing conflicts with the desire for another, and you have to make a decision as to which desire you are going to choose. Uh, recently, my wife and I came across this very scenario as we ventured into the thing called Whole30. Anybody know what Whole30 is? It's a diet. Every year or two, there's new diets that come on the scene, and uh, people will try these diets out, and I've tried various ones in the past, they've never worked, so I've always been a little skeptical, and usually it's because I love eating far more than I like not eating, and so uh, my wife said, let's try this Whole30 thing. And the, the, basically the, the sum of it, Whole30 is, for 30 days, you give up things that are unnatural. Uh, so you give up processed sugars, you give up any ingredients that you can't pronounce. As you look at the back of a box and you're reading through what the ingredients are, if you can't pronounce it, that's usually a sign that that's not a natural ingredient, you can't eat it. You're also cutting out grains, you're cutting out dairy, you're cutting out alcohol, and you're basically left with meat, fruits, veggies, and eggs. And there's only so much you can do with eggs that, yeah, if you've done Whole30, you know what I'm talking about. So we started the beginning of March with Whole30, and the first couple days are horrible. You turn into a demonized version of yourself because your body is going through this horrible transition of not being allowed to consume and be filled with these unnatural ingredients that we were never meant to consume in the first place. And you realize how dependent you are upon those things and your body is telling you, no, no, I need fake stuff, I need fake stuff. 
And so when the kids say anything, you lash out at them. And when coworkers do anything that you don't like, you lash out at them. And it's just the first two or three days are just horrible. Then you start settling into this groove and your body starts to adjust. And by day seven or eight, you're actually feeling pretty good. I actually noticed I was sleeping better. I had more energy during the day. I actually lost some weight just from changing my diet. Well, we get to day 13. And we had some friends over for dinner, and they showed up with strawberry cheesecake and a bottle of wine. Yeah, you know where this is going. So we got the, the whole 30 approved meal that we knew would be something they would like. It wasn't just eggs. And so we, we get, go through the dinner, and there's this dilemma. Do we, you know, it's just a small glass of wine. That really can't, it's natural, right? And grapes and all that stuff. So we're, we're justifying this and, you know, our friend is like, eh, yeah, yeah, you can, I'm going to have some. This is natural. And so we had a glass of wine and we eat dinner and then it comes time for dessert. And there's no way to justify the natural nature of cheesecake with these strawberries. And so Whole30 that night turned into Whole13 and we gave up on that whole venture. The desire to eat those things conflicted with the desire to want to follow through with this diet. And at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, the greater desire is always going to win out. It's always going to win out. And we, we could go on and on about so many different areas in which we have intersections and collisions of various desires. But what happens when the desire for neighboring that God has for us, that desire that hopefully is within us as well, collides with a desire to want to not engage, a desire to just distance myself, a desire to only hang out with a certain group of people. And what happens when those desires collide? What do we do? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. How do we grow in our desire to want to neighbor? Because oftentimes there is a chasm between what we know about neighboring and what we actually do about neighboring. And I believe the way to bridge that gap is with desire. That if we know we're supposed to neighbor, we're supposed to engage with people for the sake of the kingdom, that doing is only gonna happen if we have a desire within to do what it takes, as we heard from Bruce and Lori, to actually just step out, invite people over, go plant flowers, go for a walk. There has to be a desire to want to engage with people in order to neighbor well. So this morning, we're gonna take a look at a story in the Gospels uh, where Jesus confronted a group of people who did not have a desire to neighbor well, did not have a desire to engage people with the Father's heart. And we're gonna look at this idea of, does our heart line up with the Father's heart? Do we truly have God's heart? Or do we just have knowledge about what God wants us to do? Because if we have God's heart and that desire is the same, it's gonna push us to engage people even when it may be a little uncomfortable, it may be even a little inconvenient, but we need to engage people for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And as we look at this story, what you need to know is this is a story within a story. Uh, Jesus is in a setting. He's at a, a, a festival, a feast of sorts. And so we've got a physical table up here to act as a, a visual metaphor of the very setting that Jesus is in with a group of Pharisees. That's the group that he is confronting, that he's gonna push against some of their, 
their normal practices, their ways of thinking and how they were engaging with people. So this is gonna serve as a physical metaphor. But he tells an interesting story because he tells a story about a great feast and about a host that invited people over and about how those people responded. And so he's using their very setting to show them directly what they are and aren't doing. And more than what they're doing, he's revealing their heart and revealing the Father's heart and his own heart. So let's read together in Luke 14, starting in verse 15. It says, when one of those at the table with him heard this, Jesus had just gotten done giving them some, uh, basically lessons in table manners of what to do and what not to do in a, in a feast setting such as this. So when one of those, one of the Pharisees at the table with him heard this, He said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. This man is trying to fit in, trying to say something meaningful, trying to say something that would be appropriate in that moment. But with what he is saying, he is actually showing his ignorance. This would be similar to, if you remember back a few months, the Broncos were in the Super Bowl. They won, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the game yet. Uh, They... This great game, and and probably most of us went to some sort of a Super Bowl party to watch the game with other people. And this would be as though somebody was coming in and and they wanted to be a part of the festivities and all the activities surrounding watching the Broncos play in the Super Bowl. And the game starts and Peyton Manning throws his first completion and this would be that guy standing up and wanting to raise a toast and say, Peyton Manning, man, what an incredible year he is having. This is the greatest season of all time for Peyton Manning. And you sit there and you look at him and you're like, have you been watching the Broncos at all this year? Do you understand how shocked we really are that we're actually here? And if we're honest, we're all a little nervous that he is actually starting and we don't know if we can win because we're really not quite sure. And this guy's just trying to say something to fit in, trying to be relevant but with his statement, he's actually proving his ignorance. So when this Pharisee stands up and in Jesus' presence says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, Jesus could have easily rebuked him and said, just sit down, you have no idea what you're talking about. Instead, what he does is he goes into this story, again, a story within a story, similar to where they are seated, and he wants to press in on their hearts to get them to to understand something. So here's what Jesus says, here's the story. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. 
question we need to consider as we look at this passage is who does your heart beat for? Who does your heart beat for? Does it beat more for yourself or does it beat more for others? That is the question we're going to answer as we break down this story. Would you pray with me as we enter into that time? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, your perfect word, that you have given to us that we might know your heart so that we can align our hearts with it. Help us now, by means of your spirit, to consider what, what we individually, but also what we corporately need to do as we investigate the desires of of your own heart. So help us now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is sort of a, a parable of sorts. I, I guess I'd refer to it as a quasi-parable. Jesus doesn't come out and say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then fills in a story comparing that story to the kingdom. In essence, this ignorant Pharisee kind of sets the table for him, tosses him a little bit of a softball pitch. And so it is similar, very similar to a parable where Jesus tells a story that probably didn't actually happen. It's a likely scenario because he wants to hold up a mirror to this group and also now to us to say, do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? And so what I want to do is as we go through this story, there's basically four characters represented by four seats at a table here. Uh, and we're going to look at each of the four characters. We're going to then... Uh, Consider what the thread is that holds each of these characters together, and then look at some implications for what we can draw from this. So, so who's the first character? The first character at the head of the table, we have the host. The host. Uh, the host is, is a, an affluent person. Uh, he's somebody who has means and resources. This banquet that he throws is described as a great banquet. Uh, so he's, he's wanting to invite people to come in to share in all of his resources. Now, his desire is to have a full house. He wants to make sure that, that every single seat is filled in his house. This would have been a little bit of a reversal from what was going on with the Pharisees' party, where that host would have been more concerned with showing off and with making sure everybody kind of knew who he was and what he has. What this host wants is to share, wants to be a blessing to others, his heart is for those people and wanting them to partake with him in what he has. This is the first character in our story. The second character, really more a group of, of characters, is uh, we have this group of people that are invited. The invitations are sent out. The servant goes out to let everybody know that the preparations have been made, the food has been cooked, and, and we're not talking about food like leftover pizza and lemonade and just kind of having a casual gathering. This is a full-blown feast, Thanksgiving-type meal, and the invitations have been sent, and the servant goes to let those know that have been invited. It's time. It is time. Now, what is their response? To a one, every single one of them, to a person, comes back and says, I've got something else to do. I've got oxen I need to go break in and take care of, or I've got a field I've just purchased and I need to go, I need to go look at it and survey it, or I just got married, I've got other things I need to be about. And every single one of these people shows that they've got something better to do than partake in what the host is inviting them to be a part of. Now, this also would have been a bit of a reversal from the Pharisees. 
because there was no party like this that they would ever miss. They wouldn't have missed this for anything. That party that they were there with Jesus at was something that they probably pushed other stuff aside to partake in. And as they're hearing about those that are invited, this is an elite group. Their excuses show that they are more in the upper echelons of society. They would not have missed this party for anything. And yet as Jesus is telling this story, he's saying, those of you, "Ah, this might actually be you, Pharisees. And you actually have more important things than to participate in what the host is wanting to bless you with. Move to the third setting. The third setting in this story is a second group of people. Because as those that were invited initially have excuses, the servant comes back and says, oh, they're, they're not coming. So what is, what is the host's response? Then the owner of the house, verse 21, became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. He goes to the opposite end of the social spectrum in that day and he says, this marginalized group of people, bring them in. If those elite are too good for my party, I want a full house. I want a full house and so would you go and bring bring everybody else that doesn't have an excuse. What's interesting is he connects this back with part of his previous statements Because he told them in verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He is showing them with this statement, this this quad description, I'm pressing right into your heart. Because this group of people, you come up with excuses to why you don't want to engage with them. My heart is for those people. And I want them at my table. I want them celebrating with me. I want them participating in the blessings that I want to give. And so in this story, we don't have a description of the invitation that they're given. We're just simply told they're here. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. There is still room. So we have this third setting, this marginalized group. And we have a fourth setting, a fourth character, and that is the servant. The servant is kind of like the unsung hero in this story. The desires of the host are one thing, and the servant just simply is responding. It doesn't matter who he is going to, the servant is following after the orders of the master. Now, what this story isn't teaching is that there is some sort of classification and there is a group of people that gets first preference and if they get to, you know, if they decide to reject then Jesus is going to go after another group of people. No, that's not what this parable is teaching. He's pushing into the cultural customs of their day and the way that they viewed people. And ultimately what this story is showing is it doesn't matter who it is. I want them at the table. I want the elite at the table. I want the marginalized at the table. I want to share everything that I have with everybody because they are people. And the servant just simply goes. It's interesting how the master then says, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. The servant was the one that went and compelled to persuade to give some sort of an argument to someone. This is why you need to come. 
You need to be here. You need to be at this party. The servant simply did what the master, the host, wanted. So we have the host, the elite, the marginalized, and the servant. What's the thread that holds all of this together? What is that main point? What's the main course, so to speak, that Jesus wants those Pharisees to understand and also for us today? What is it that he wants us to understand? He comes back to this word, desire. It comes back to this word desire because as he's looking at this scene, remember a story within a story, as Jesus is there at a party, he sees right through the Pharisees. He sees through their motives, he sees right to the core of their hearts and they are not there for the right reasons. They're there for themselves. And so this host, this host has a desire and this is the desire that supersedes all other desires. This host has a desire for a full house, that's it. I just simply want people with me to celebrate with me so that I can bless them. The host has this desire, and this is the Father. The Father has a heart for people and wants them to be with him, and he wants to bless them. That is the heart of the host. But then you have the desire of the elite. The desire of the lead is for themselves. They have a heart for themselves, and that is it. At this party that Jesus is at, they originally invited a disease-ridden man, which would not have been done in those days. That disease-ridden man would have uh, potentially contaminated them, caused them to be unclean in their food as well. They had ulterior motives. They were not trying to bless that man. They were trying to bless themselves and trick Jesus. But this group of people, this is, this is one that's convicting for me because I know when it comes to engaging with other people, when it comes to engaging in the things of the kingdom, I oftentimes think of myself. I oftentimes put my own personal desires above the hosts, above the fathers. And if we were to be honest, my guess is every single one of us here probably has certain ways, even maybe today, this last week, where we know the desires of the self have superseded the desires of the host. And I said, we don't wanna partake in what the host wants. We're gonna do our own thing. And then you have the desires of the second group, the marginalized. We're not giving any, given any explicit description about them other than that they're there. But I can only imagine what's going on in their hearts as they receive this invitation from the servant. Come, this great man in our society, he wants you to come and participate in this feast that he is throwing. He wants to bless you in this way. Now, there's no argument, they're running. I get to go? I get to participate? I'm not gonna miss that for anything. And we see that their desire is simply to be blessed and they may not have even known it. They may not have even known it, but when the invitation came, they accepted. Their desire was simply to be blessed. And then you have the desire of the servant. The desire of the servant was not for himself. This is the opposite of the desires of the elite. His desire was the desire of the host. When the host said, I want you to go out to those that have been invited, he knew that they were probably in the nicer houses and they were in the upper echelon parts of the city. He could tell as he walked through their gates to go let them know. He knew who he was going to, yet he still went to those people. And what's interesting is 
When he comes back, he comes back to the host and says, they have said no. There already is a group of the marginalized there because is it possible that he already kind of read ahead of things? He already knew the heart of the host and said, I'm gonna invite those people anyways. They're already there. And when there was still room, when there was still room, he went back out. The host said, compel them to come in and he went out and did whatever it took to compel everybody else to come participate in the party. Four place settings, all with desires that are on display. And what's happening here is a mirror is being held up to us to say, what do you see? What do you see? Because what's interesting is Luke doesn't give us a resolution to this story. He doesn't tell us what the Pharisees' response. He doesn't say if Jesus does anything else. If Jesus did anything, here's what he did. He dropped the mic and walked off the stage. There, I've said it, I'm done. I'm gonna leave this for you to now wrestle with. And that is exactly what we have to do is wrestle with this story. To consider who it is that we might be identifying with. Where is that conviction within? Are we like this host? Or we have a desire, a heart to want to reach whoever it is. Are we like that first group? Or we have excuses ourselves become more important than the Father's desires, and we end up doing our own thing and come up with whatever the excuse may be. Is it like the marginalized? Are you here and you're feeling as though, I just don't belong? This is an incredible message of hope because the Father wants you even if society, for whatever reason, says, no, I don't want you. And if anything, we need to consider the role of the servant. Does our desire line up with the host and we just simply are gonna do what the host has asked us to do because that is the most important thing. That's for each of us individually to now wrestle with. In those days there was, and in this very scene, there was something that Jesus was pushing in against hard. And it was this religious elitism of Phariseeism, that's the term that we have because of the Pharisees and who we saw them to be where they were so legalistic about their rituals and their laws and their rules. I don't think that's the issue that needs to be necessarily addressed. Maybe, maybe that is for you, but as I've spent time here at Waterstone, I have not known this to be a group of legalistic, pharisaical people. But that doesn't mean that we don't have our own excuses, our own issues, our own challenges when it comes to engaging with people. When it comes to taking that step of engagement, I think there's two main distractions. I know for myself, and if you identify with these, I know I'm in good company. But the first is we are a distracted people. A distracted people. We have distractions all over the place. Sometimes our distractions are just simply a busy, a busy schedule. We're running from place to place and activity to activity or our kids' activities. I don't ever do anything for myself anymore. It's all for my kids. It's not a bad thing, but we're busy, we're busy, we're busy. And I find myself oftentimes saying, I'm too busy to engage with this person. I'm too busy to actually spend an hour getting to know their story. And I've come to the conclusion that if I'm too busy to neighbor and to engage with other people, I'm far busier than God ever intended for me to be. But it doesn't mean we need to get rid of our schedules doesn't mean we need to stop going to places and doing things, 
Perhaps we need to consider even in the midst of whatever that busyness is, how can we step into those engagements with those people on our kids' sports teams, at work, wherever else it may be. But there's another way that we're distracted. Technology distracts us. We call these phones. I don't know if, I don't use it to call anybody really, but we call it a phone. But you combine this with this. And you know what this is? This is a personal anti-engagement device. (laughs) This is an introvert's dream right here. For me, I can just put those earbuds in and I'm telling everybody, don't bug me. And I don't want to bug you. Flew down to Texas a couple months back and uh, fascinated to see as I'm in the airport, Houston International Airport for a layover, and I'm looking around, hundreds of people, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was upwards of 70, 80% of people sitting there doing this, doing this. Rode the RTD downtown the other day. And the same thing, people sitting there doing this, writing at home, sitting there doing this. And these, unfortunately, have become anti-engagement devices. Where I can, oh, it's important, man, I've gotta see what's going on on Facebook. I haven't looked at it in five minutes. And so we go through and we wanna see, I've I've gotta check, did my emails come in? Oh Oh yeah, I did check that just three minutes ago. And I know for myself, this has become something that I hide behind to keep from having to engage with people. These are my excuses. I'm distracted by business, distracted by technology. But I think we have something else that distracts us. Maybe not necessarily, well it does distract us, but it's a challenge when it comes to engaging and that is discomfort. Birds of a feather flock together and oftentimes it's not an issue of engaging, it's will I engage with somebody that I may not agree with? Will I engage with somebody who I don't look like, I don't think like, I don't act like, I don't believe like? I will engage with people so long as we can sit around the table and talk about the same things politically or religiously or socially. That person three doors down, I purposely have gone out of my way of doing anything to engage them because I don't agree with them or I don't know if they'd like me or it's just really uncomfortable. I think this is an excuse that we have to deal with in our culture. In a day where fear is often what is pushed upon us as we watch talking heads on the news and talking heads in political conversations and groups of people are identified in particular ways, that's uncomfortable, I'm fearful. I don't know if I can step out and engage with them. But I think this is a fear we need to overcome. This is a a discomfort we need to own and step over and say, no, for the sake of engaging people for the kingdom, I might have to be put in an uncomfortable spot. I saw an example of how how this has been done. This last week went to a conference downtown called the Q Conference. It's for Christian leaders, kind of like a a Christian TED Talks environment where you're sharing ideas over controversial issues and just kind of laying it out there and saying, how are we as a Christian community gonna deal with it? Whether it's uh, the marijuana stuff here in Colorado, physician-assisted suicide, transgenderism, and so forth. And in one of the sessions, they, they wanted to show us an example of how you can engage with people even if you don't agree with them. 
And so they brought up on stage uh, a relationship, a friendship that has developed between two leaders in our community. We've got a picture. Go ahead and show it up here. This was Thursday at the Paramount Theater downtown. You have Jim Daly, who's the president of Focus on the Family, and Ted Trimpa there in the middle, one of the leading gay activists here in Colorado. And they're sitting on the table, you can, or not the table, the, the, on the couch there, and you can even see in their expression, there's a friendship here that has developed. A friendship where Jim decided one day, I'm gonna pick up the phone call, or pick up the phone and make a call to Ted, because there's an issue that I think we can address together, even though we come from two completely different perspectives, engaging with each other is going to be beneficial for the kingdom. But it's gone even beyond that. And the issue that, that they were addressing was the trafficking here in Colorado, where both of them have a, a commonality of this is horrific and we need to do something about this. And what was fascinating is they were sharing their story and even bantering back and forth. Multiple times, Jim's would say, I just want him to know about the love of Christ. I just want him to know about the love of Christ. And Ted's sitting right there. It's not like he's hiding this, you know, I'm, you know in kind of a covert way, gonna insert this Jesus stuff. No, from day one, it's like, yeah, well, let's talk together, but I want you to know about Christ. And for Ted to be able to share about how when he had open heart surgery or heart surgery this last year, so Jim was the one that was calling me, that was checking in on me, and I knew he was praying for me, and I knew that there was some sort of a presence I could feel because of what he was doing. And I'm sitting there going, wow, that is an example of engagement for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of not just a, a, a social issue, but for an individual relationship, a person. And it started with picking up the phone and calling and saying, do you wanna go grab lunch? And then Ted described how when he got off the phone, he shared with his office, yeah, the president of uh, Focus on the Family wants to grab lunch with me. He said it took a couple days to pick people's jaws up off the ground. But a relationship has developed simply because someone picked up the phone and said, do you wanna grab lunch? Now you probably aren't the executive director of one of the largest Christian organizations, but it doesn't mean that we can't pick up the phone. It doesn't mean we can't, as we're bumping into somebody at the mailbox, say, hey, you wanna go grab coffee? Hey, you wanna, whatever else it may be. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things like you know, snow blowing our neighbor's sidewalks or raking their leaves or do, serving them. We need to serve people, but at some point we need to engage. We need to engage people face to face. We need to share stories, we need to hear stories. So as we get to, as we move along in this series, we get to that share piece of how do you actually share about Jesus? But you can never get to that place of sharing about Jesus if you don't have some sort of a relationship. We live in a post-Christian culture, people that are skeptical of Christianity and church. If we just start with sharing Jesus, they're gonna, eh. But if we love them, if we say we wanna, we wanna know them, know their story, hear their heart, know their background, there will come a moment to share, but we've gotta start with this engaging piece. And what this story does is it holds up a mirror. And it says, does your heart beat for yourself or does your heart beat for others? Because if your heart beats for others, that's who the host heart beat for. It beat for others, it wasn't for himself. If your heart beats for others, there is a desire there and you will step into those engaging opportunities. 
Those excuses, those challenges of being distracted will fall by the wayside. Those discomforts will, will, will pale in comparison to the fruit of stepping into an engagement with somebody for the sake of the kingdom. The question is whether or not we want our desires to line up with the host, whether we want the, ho- the heart of the host and the urgency of the servant to go. This is a challenge. It's a challenge for me, and my guess is it's a challenge for you, but this is a challenge we need to accept and step into for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of others knowing about the kingdom. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know where you are at. The beautiful thing is, right now, God knows where your heart is at. And you now know where his heart is at or have been reminded of where his heart is at. Who is it that you identify with in this story? What is the Holy Spirit impressing upon you right now that you might need to do? I would challenge you that one of the best places to begin is just simply taking that step, pick up the phone, go over across the street, and ask somebody to sit down with you at a table, whether it's in your home, in a coffee shop, wherever it may be, and engage with them in a way where you wanna know their story and you wanna know who they are, and then trust God with the rest. But let's be a people who steps into engaging with others because we know that is the heart of the host. Father, thank you. Thank you for the way that you have given us your word and you've given us this challenge. Help us to trust you as we come across people in all sorts of situations, whether it's in our neighborhoods, at work, the grocery store, wherever it may be, may we have your heart as we see these people and as we step into opportunities to engage with them. Help us as we go from here to have your heart. I pray this in Jesus' name.